When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Sam Keir, host of Hitman for Hire, a year in the life of a franchise cricketer. For the past 12 months, I've been talking to T20 star David Visa, getting his take from behind the scenes at the IPL, the 100 and the rest of the world's biggest leagues. That's the Donnelly View system, Dion. There's no <laughs> ways in my mind that was up. These guys don't know how to win at this stage. He had his driver pick him up in his Bentley. People start chanting your name. You kind of have to pinch yourself. Hitman for Hire, a year in the life of a franchise cricketer. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Sport Social. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. It's a cricket podcast. You might know that because it says it in the name. You might know it if you clicked on it to listen to it. I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is the other one uh, who you will hear momentarily when I introduce him. Why don't we do that now? Here he is. It's, it's the end of June. Things are a about to get busy, things have been busy, things are still in the middle of busyness as the English summer, or the European summer unfolds apace and you're just back from Amsterdam and, and looking reasonably well rested. Yeah, I wouldn't say well rested. It's been a pretty uh, flat knacker few weeks, uh, but it was lovely to sort of be in Amsterdam with lots of our final word friends and wasn't working over there in the end, the way things played out, had Rach and Winnie with me and it was an utter joy having been at Lords a couple of days before that and having come straight from Nottingham and having to sort of miss the podcast cycle last week through all that travel. Nice to be back today. But yeah, I think that there is a, a real case for them making that Holland trip an annual thing or some version of that. I'm sure we'll probably talk about that in a bit more depth in a bit. But yeah, it's been a flat knacker week and uh, nice to be back in uh, in my living room recording a podcast. Well, you'll be pleased to know that Daniel Norcross and Barrett Sunderosen did a lovely job filling in for you. Things got suitably weird on the two shows when you're away. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see how much we get back within the painted lines as we go through this week's show. Uh, plenty of bits and pieces to cover before I jump on a plane and head off to Colombo, which is happening pretty soon. Uh, Barrett's already there and uh, we'll will be there by, by later in the week. But because I didn't get to talk to you last week, I didn't get to ask what happened in the game that you were playing at Lords after oh, yes. having watched the test match at Lords. You were in the middle at some point for something and I know nothing else about it besides that. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Being like the whole experience, uh, yeah, it, granted it was a sponsor's function so they really are laying it out as they would the MCC. But from the breakfast in the long room through to you know, taking your place in the home dressing room, walking through the gates of Lords to bat on the main ground. There are two games going on concurrently and um, one over the back on, on the nursery ground as well. And I mean, I, I probably, I wouldn't say I got overawed by the experience, but I, I had a fairly frenetic first game uh, where I got hit for the biggest six I've ever been hit for over far the time, the whole bit. 
And I was captaining the side uh, and we went for <laughs> shitloads against JP Morgan, who we were playing against for, for Clicquot Cavaliers we were. And yes, in response, we had lots to chase. Ian Bell got us off to a great start. Great to be able to say that. Uh, <laughs> and Dan Price, our, uh, our actually Dan was the, the, the man who reached his 25, the automatic retirement first. Uh, I came in at number three and was gone a ball later when O.A. Shah um, had me chopping on. I made the the ridiculous error of wearing a helmet. And I shouldn't say this, but it's true. I never wear a helmet when I bat. I do, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it's not like I wouldn't wear one. If I was facing bowling, it could get up around my face. But it's been so long since I've played that level of cricket, I've become rather conditioned to batting in a wide-brimmed hat. And I should have mm-hmm. done so. For some reason, I walked out with a lid on. Probably because I think they had Sajid Mahmood in the opposition. I think if memory... No, no, sorry. That was a later game. This was with O.A. Shah as their pro. But anyway, I chopped on first ball and I've never been more devastated on the cricket field than thinking this might be my only opportunity to play here. And I've been bowled first up and I've been hit for a gigantic six, one of three sixes in my over. Um, Bearing in mind, there's only four fielders and, you know, the boundaries are 40 metres on on the short side of the ground. But still... Was it anyone good who hit you for the six? I don't know. Uh, I think the first ball of the over, O.A. Shah hit me out to deep point or something like that. So he was off strike. Then I went the journey after that in similar fashion to the way that Michael Bracewell did a couple of days earlier after yeah. tea. But it got better progressively through the day. We didn't win that first game. The second game on the nursery ground, I got off to a pretty good start again with betting with Belly, which was a great experience. Hit a couple of nice shots down the ground, a couple of sweep shots. Like I was away basically racing towards my 25 and hit a really hard sweep shot that barely got more than six inches off the ground and thudded into the fence so hard. It took a, it left a mark on there on the, on the tiny little fence they have around at the um, nursery ground. Mm -hmm. But the rule, the local rule now for the nursery ground is you can't hit a six on there at six and out. So I was out for 19, <laughs> having hit the fence on the full, and I was fuming because yeah. of it. Because, you know, in the, the spirit of the rule is you don't do what I did the last time I played on that ground and hit a ball at the press box. I hit a ball into the media centre last time I was on the nursery ground a few years ago. But, yes, this time out, six and out, and, and very pissed off. But earlier in that game, no, sorry, batted first. Later in that game, the highlight of my day was when um, I, I, sent, I was bowling off spin because I can't really bowl any more than that these days because of my shoulder and ramps run past one. I had him stumped by Dan and um, that was, I, I made sure I didn't give him a send off or anything like that. Ramps might've smacked me one, uh-huh. uh, but I did. It is in the school book, Ramper cash stump price, bold Collins for 12 or something like that. And we won that middle game, which set us up for the final game back on the main pitch. Mm-hmm. And you could say my captaincy was left begging somewhat because we made a change in wicketkeeper. Leisha Hawkins, who's the boss of Wales cricket, came out and kept wicket. Her first game on Lords took a great catch. It was like a real sort of marquee moment of the day. In fact, we got given a magnum of um, verve later in the night. It was like the sort of uh, the, the champagne moment of the day or something like that mm-hmm. when she took a catch first ball of the innings. But Dan, who has a bung shoulder, can't really bowl. And I just thought he was being modest. Like, oh, you know, I can't bowl. Being 21, mm. I thought, yeah, you can't bowl. But I mean, you know, Obviously, you can bowl. You're a, you're an excellent cricketer. You've made 25 twice today. I saw you wicket keep last year against the Dream Boys. You're going to be able to get an over down there. I gave him the last over, 30 runs to play with, and five balls sailed over the rope. We lost the game <laughs> with a ball to spare. Oh, poor Dan. Couple of, couple of wides in there too. And everyone was watching and he was he was gutted, the poor fella. But um, a great time had by all, an afternoon tea in the writing room, a, a drinks reception in the turret, uh, their cocktails are on, on the turret there above the uh, pavilion, then a, a long room dinner. Um, it was a, a pretty 
remarkable sort of day out. Uh, and even though I didn't have a particularly good day on the field with my new Woodstock, it was just the best. And I'm so privileged to have had that opportunity. So thanks to Jeff and Dan, who both contribute to the show and are both big supporters of what we do for inviting me along. Yeah, well, that was Jeff Price and Dan Price, not me and Dan Norcross, who also That's contribute true. to the show. Um, <laughs> you know, I making it when when you're not around because uh, you had to rush from Trent Bridge to Amsterdam, the classic classic journey. You could probably do it on a canal boat if you really wanted to. You could probably yes. find a way. I imagine <laughs> through the through the canals, there's, there's got to be like a Michael Fabricant documentary or something. Um, <laughs> you know, taking <laughs> taking the canal boats from Glasgow <laughs> to you know, like surely it, it, who's who's the other fellow who used to be a Tory MP who ended up making documentaries about you know uh, train journeys. That was the other one. Never right. mind. Look, look, I'm I'm just putting this together in my head. But nonetheless, the sure. the vision. From, from out of Netherlands over over the last few days and they, they're yet to play the third ODI there. But it was very charming to see on the on the Final Word uh, chat website, lots of meetups, lots of people getting together, um, listeners to the show, recent listeners to the show and so on, meeting up at the ground, having picnics, having naps, going to the bars, going on the canal boats, um, wandering around Amsterdam and, and having a generally lovely time. So I, I was very, I was jealous, but, um, but, but I, I was also glad that you were all getting to experience that. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, it was touch and go whether I was going to go to Amsterdam for this series because the work I was going to be doing over there didn't quite come to fruition. And I thought, you know what? So many of the final nerds as the WhatsApp groups now called for those who came along have committed to the journey. I can't back out. I won't back out. I'll bring, mm. I'll bring the girls with me. And I'm so uh, glad. Back down. <laughs> I'm so glad I did. Uh, um, whenever I hear that song, I think of Jonah in Veep when he goes, uh, and I won't back down. Uh, the, the, um, no, the, the, um, oh, it was so good. Anna and Mel and Julian and Joe and Jeff and Dan, who we already mentioned, who also made the trip to Amsterdam and Declan, who had his mates, George and Aaron, uh, with him and Caroline, who had to leave early and Sarah, who arrived as we left and Matt, who joined Discord like moments before the trip saw the meetup was on and came down for the duration of it um there was anthony and his old man chris and i didn't realize anthony was part of the final word community uh, he, he i think jeff overheard him talking about the podcast in the grandstand said do you want to come to the pub later tonight and so they did and and one better bit was that at the end of the evening they came up and said oh, we were parishioners of ellie oldroyd's dad colin uh when he was uh running the church at ledbury i think it was so mm-hmm. ellie's family know their family and have done so for for many decades and ellie was chuffed when i passed that news on to her and her mum received the photograph of us all together at the pub yeah it was yeah really wholesome stuff mm-hmm. and uh, then we had the boat trip on night so that was the pub drinking the orange wine uh, on evening one which was great and evening two, the Saturday night, uh, Julian and Joe, who run the History of Netherlands podcast and have been great contributors on the Discord channel and on Patreon and been talking to us for seemingly years, Jeff, they organised one of their tour boats to take us on the canals for three hours on a gorgeous Saturday evening. So we went from orange wine on the Friday to mm-hmm. tins of beer that were BYO on, your, on the second and I roped in Henry Moran to join us for that. It was just a gorgeous night and um yeah it wouldn't be possible i suppose without that discord page where people are forming these friendships and having their own conversations about cricket which are 
thoroughly separate to us. Uh, I mean, take uh, Declan and Dan. I mentioned Dan already. He and Declan, who were big parts of the final word team that beat the Oval Dream Boys last year, mm. they're going to organise the next game, which we can announce today is going to be the 16th of September. Right. Uh, hopefully at Dulwich Cricket Club again. Hopefully it all comes uh, to pass that we're on the same ground. But against the Dream Boys, so we'll, we'll start putting an 11 together. But um, they're just organising it themselves. Um, they didn't know each other before we started all this final mm-hmm. week caper. So I just think that's that's just lovely. And hopefully, as I sort of mentioned before, the uh, the European tour can be something that ends up in the diary. Jeff, I'm not sure how closely you've been following all of this, and even though pretty, England yeah, been- pretty closely. I've, I've been, you know, I, I I would have loved to have been able to be there. It wasn't possible with everything with international travel and needing to go to Sri Lanka immediately afterwards and all the rest of it. I thought, yeah. I don't think I can justify going <laughs> to Europe for, say, two days. I, I, I think that's a hard one to, to be able to put down the reasoning for. But uh, the Ashes are on next year, and so there's no... There's no reason why I couldn't go a bit early, you know? Well, I think that there are ways of doing this right. So there's been some criticism of Dutch cricket over the last few days without wanting to get overly serious. Yeah, people are kind of seeing the 498, which, by the way, I didn't see. I had Winnie with me and it was bloody hot. So as Joss Butler was walking out to bat, yeah. I had to take my daughter away. And as someone remarked on Discord, a screenshot you sent me, Jeff, wasn't it? ridiculously appropriate that I was taking my child away from a major sporting event. <laughs> By that, I mean the world record. Uh, in, a, in major sporting moment, a, a major a sporting moment. A historical, historical moment. <laughs> it wasn't lost upon yep. those there either that I'd left in the same way that my dad had taken me away from a number of those when I was a kid. In, <laughs> it, you know, it was Sean McGiven who came up with Sean McGiven. His, his phrasing McGiven. was, uh, eventually we always turn into our parents. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure my dad likes the perception of him that's doing the rounds that he used to. He didn't take me home from everything early, just a really a few really significant moments like uh-huh. Bacanara after the siren, at 94 qualifying final when it was a draw and we'd left five minutes earlier. Mark yes, Wars, Pfeiffer. Mark Pfeiffer yeah. um, in the one-day international at the G against the Windies. A few quite significant <laughs> ones. It's not that it happened all the time, but it did enough that I remember it and it's left a scar. But well, look, we did leave the, as the Josh point was walking is, in. And, and I'll, I'll address this directly to Daryl. Daryl, it's not about you, but at some point on podcasts, running jokes emerge and you've just got to live with it. Like, you just, that's that's it. just part of your life from now on. <laughs> we, we both have many of them attached to us. Um, yep. And unfortunately, you now have one attached to you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. No, so um, yeah, we left we left that game early, but yeah, there was some stick being levelled at Dutch cricket, saying, "Well, they're not up to it. They shouldn't be playing one day international cricket against the world champions. They should, you know, play in their own little sandpit with other associate okay. nations." But well, you I know, mean, Jeff who, is, who else conceded nearly five hundred to that England team was Australia a couple of yeah, years Australia, ago. Should exactly. they not be playing one day international cricket? Like teams get Absolutely. belted in cricket, it happens. Yeah, and they're understaffed. They had four players missing because they weren't able to be yeah. released from their counties because of the blast. Like, there are mitigating factors here, right? And England are the world champions gearing up to go again. They had most of their white ball stars available. So, you know, you can see how that, that could happen. And by the way, it was just brilliant to watch, wasn't it? Watching mm-hmm. Butler and Livingston do what they do, they are taking it to another level as power hitters. And the game's going to be better for it. And other countries will have to catch up and try and overtake them in time for the World Cup in India in, what, 14, 15 months, something like that. But just on the idea of a of an annual escapade like that. It doesn't need to be a three-game, one-day series. What about one of these tri-series or even quad series mm. uh, for T20s that actually work quite well? If you had a European quad series, say each you know, each May or June, where there tends to be space in the diary for England's white ball players because there's test mm-hmm. cricket going on, you can send a second team or, or another team, a composite team, out to play in the white ball games. Yep. You can play double-headers 
three days in a row, so everybody plays everyone in a T20, then you could have a day off and have a final. Giddy yep. up. I mean, that, and that could be rotated between Scotland, Ireland and Netherlands. It would help with, as Ben Jones put it, the, the, the distribution of cricket's tourism wealth because mm. we know the England team, when they play anywhere overseas, that people go. It was chockers. So much so that they didn't handle it very well, the beer cues and the toilet cues and all the rest of it. Yep. But over time, they'd adapt to that. If they played between... Amstelveen, the Grange, and Malahide, mm. they would get great numbers year on year, uh, and it would be a way that England could give back all in the space of five or six days. And a lot more England-supporting fans can travel for, say, two days on the continent or, or two days elsewhere in the British Isles than, say, three weeks in Sri Lanka or wh- whatever it might be. So you're not oh, yeah. you're not trying to tap into to the same sort of long-range touring fans, there's a lot more possibility for people to get involved. Um, yeah, someone pointed out on the Discord something I hadn't twigged to that England have never played Scotland in England. It's never happened. Really? I mean, it's just absurd that it's never it's never happened with the country literally next door. And, yeah. And not so much in terms of the ideals of cricketing equity and all the rest of it, but just financially. Like, surely the most sensible thing for England to do would be invest in developing opponents locally to push for investing in say Ireland and Scotland and so on to be credible regular opponents because when you've got that sort of hometown derby kind of stuff you've got that local rival thing you're more likely to get crowds you know like like why are you going all out to try to attract people to Sri Lanka or New Zealand playing in London as opposed to well, not that it has to be one or the other, but when you when you can have Ireland and Scotland playing in London, we saw what happened when Ireland played at Lords. They packed the place yep. out because suddenly you've got a whole other subset of extremely local fans who are likely to come along. Um, the same would happen with Scotland, and that's a money maker. Like if you you put the investment into it, eventually it starts returning on that. When uh, you do that regularly, you make sure you do it each summer, have a fixture in there, and and reap the benefits. Yeah, and the good news is that it looks like England are going to host Ireland in a test match next year ahead of the Ashes. We saw reports of that right. um, last week. And that's great, but it shouldn't just be a one-off thing. And yeah. yeah, just further to your point there, until four days ago, England had lost to Netherlands, Scotland and Ireland in their most recent fixtures. It's still yeah. the case for Scotland and Ireland. So it's not as though they're wholly uncompetitive. Yes, there will be mismatches from time to time. Yeah. And as Andrew Nixon and others point out when they've been arguing the corner of of the Dutch, there are mismatches in the World Cup all the time between full member nations. So yeah. the fact they got clouded for 498 on a road, on a hot day with their bowlers missing, there was, you know, an England keen to, to make a mark to start the mm. series with a, a group who were ready to go again for another World Cup cycle. You can see how that would happen, but it, it, it's not a, a plebiscite or a, right. a referendum better still on, on whether they should be permitted to play. They should play more. And this is a way of doing it, which and we're going to talk about the environment a little bit later in travel. It doesn't mean that people are flying all around the world either. Mm. It's a relatively, what I, would, I was going to say, carbon unintensive or whatever I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Mm. It, it's less, it packs less a punch on the environment when you're travelling up to Scotland than it does if you're flying to wherever it is that we fly to all the time, which mm. provides us with a degree of guilt for continuing to do the jobs the way we do them. Anyway, food for thought. I'm glad it worked well and hopefully the third uh, game is competitive in a couple of days. By that stage, Jeff, you'll be in Sri Lanka. Yeah. I won't. I don't fly until this time next week. I'm getting in just before the test because I'll be at Leeds for the third test match between England and New Zealand that starts on Thursday here. 
the one day is I haven't watched loads of, but what I have been able to detect is that their batting hasn't quite clicked when batting first. They chased well in that first one day, but mm. Sri Lanka have had the better of it. My only small observation is that I, I, mean, I know Maxie does well at seven, and I know I'm predisposed to talking about Glenn Maxwell, but <laughs> is, it not, is it not a bit of a waste having him down at number seven? Like only having sort of four or five overs towards the end of innings to, to make a contribution when I think that was the case in the third one day, wasn't it? He came in in over 46 or something mm. like that when we saw in the first one day that he's as good as anyone else at lighting the, lighting the show up. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one um, because he's gone so well there recently after having some, you know, periods where he wasn't quite sure what he was supposed to be doing, I think, um, floating around the order. I remember they had him at four during the World Cup in 2019 and um, there were occasions where it, there, were, there were times when he, he scored very quickly um, but he didn't make huge scores maybe 48 was there was that fast 48 and some fast 30s and so on going down to seven yeah that's where he made that 100 against England in 2020 and and it's been good at that spot since then although they've been playing very little one day cricket as well so it's it's not like you know it's not like two years of playing every week and tearing it up at seven so I think that's a bit misleading as well to say oh look his recent record at seven because that record spans three years so there's no there's, there's no clear way to, to decide it, I guess. But, yeah, if you take the theory, you know, you look at the kind of... Joss Butler's often the comparison. That's what Dan Norcross was comparing Maxwell to last week when he just played that innings when we recorded the show. And there's the England theory that you, you use Butler for a lot of time if you can um, and you float him a bit in the order and, and so on. But that also has seemed a bit disruptive for Maxwell in the past. So I don't know. I'd, mm. it's, it's not anything that there's a, a strong answer to it. I think anybody who says there's a strong answer either way is making that up. Yeah, inexact as it often is with, with cricket selection. I, I think they were timely runs for Travis Head. I'm not saying he would have lost his spot before the Test Series, but, you know, remember Andrew McDonald said when they announced this team mm. that they'd have, and George Bailey likewise, they'd have flexibility across the squads. They were keen to take a lot of people playing different formats and effectively pick the players who were in form for the Test matches coming last. So, you know, head making an unbeaten mm-hmm. 70 in that third game certainly will help his cause. Injuries as well, including to Ashton Agar. I'm not quite sure how they're planning on dealing with that, but I suppose yeah. he wasn't in the side in Pakistan. And Swepson has been in and out of the 50-over team, though. And so where they see him, I suppose it will be Lyon and Swepson when it matters most in, in the test matches. But where Maxwell might fit into that conversation in the absence of Agar, if they were looking for a sort of floating all-round option, it means batting the wicketkeeper probably inside the top six if you want to mm. facilitate that, or Maxwell could bat six. But, yeah, it's not outside the realms of possibility that they'd pull that lever. But I guess all will be revealed when we end up there. Jeff, as I say, you fly out. The excitement of, of being in Gaul and we start again with the daily shows. It's a new test venue for me. We'll be broadcasting for SEN. I think this is out there now that we're, we're doing SEN for it. From the roof of the pavilion which is going to be an experience. I know some of our colleagues had that opportunity a few years ago, but we're going to be in a tent on top of the pavilion at Gaul for the two test matches. So fun and games <laughs> if it rains, but I'm sure we'll, we'll have our wits about us and okay. be able to make that work. So Is that, this that's, a voluntary that's thing like, like it was for you in Pakistan? This is just the way it is? Yeah, no, this is just the way it is. We, okay. we, we were told this was our commentary spot and... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it'll be. So exciting times. Uh, Barat Sundarason wrote a piece overnight doing as he does best. And Jeff, you'll be uh, with him soon enough, uh, giving sort of a first-hand account of the fuel situation, 
and the protests and talking to loads of locals um, that have been part of this recently. They've been forming human chains outside the ground, just like civil disobedience and that kind of thing, while the cricket's inside, which is being interpreted by the protesters as a positive. Like they're, they're mm. seeing that there's some hope and some distraction inside the prima dasa while whatever's going on outside they need to you know keep providing as much pressure as they can as fidel fernando told us a, a couple of weeks ago but yeah the overarching theme of that piece seemed to be that they're finding a way to get on with it in really tough times just as they have in the last 30 or 40 years when there has been times when sri lanka has been a difficult violent country but because of that that they're resilient and tough and and they can kind of, you know, walk and chew gum, if you know what I mean. They can push for change and hold an international cricket tour and be in dire straits economically. And all of these things can be mm. happening all at the same time. Well, Barat's been having these chats with everybody he can. And the consistent theme being uh, the things that you read in cricket articles about the cricket being a source of solace and, and happiness. Is that true? And everybody's like, no, we don't give a shit about the cricket, um, which it seems fair enough because they've got other things on their mind. So yeah, I think the people in the stadium care about it. The people who haven't bothered going don't so much because they've got a lot of other things on their minds. But yeah, he's he's been telling me interesting stories in in the lead up to arriving you know just even just basic things like getting around the city because so many of the taxis and transport options don't have fuel they can't yeah, drive yeah. so you're walking from place to place he was walking two and a half hours from the ground to accommodation you know just to go down and watch training and you know get to the matches and so on um, so it's a wow. it is an intense situation a palace situation there um, at the moment but I'll be able to tell you more firsthand once I get there in a couple of days. Feels a bit of a sharp gear shift here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. Jeff, uh, before we move to the next part of the show, we have an announcement to make. Jeff, you, you mentioned on the show last week that we're slightly changing up the way we're doing things with more advertisements on the show than there have been in the past. And, and we'll sort of suck it and see how that plays out. That's an arrangement we've got in place. Well, another arrangement we have in place, and this is pretty cool, I reckon, is that we have the Advanced Hair Studio joining uh, <laughs> us on the final word. Yeah, yeah. An organisation which has been linked to cricket for as long as I can remember, at least mm -hmm. three decades, going back to Greg Matthews in the early days and Graham Gooch and, uh, and all the rest of it. Shane Warne, of course, famously, Darren Goff. Uh, and we're going to be uh, working with Advanced Hair throughout the course of the rest of the England summer on our daily show, starting at Leeds this week and then into Sri Lanka and on we go. But yes, uh, I was very pleased when that came to pass because we've, uh, I feel like we know the advanced test story back to front and it's one we're going to be telling proudly over the next few months. Well, it's a bit like getting to, you know, play with nostalgia, uh, getting to getting to sub ourselves into that position of the, you know, as you, as you say, the Mo Matthews advanced hair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I used to say that at primary school to my friends. That was, that, that was like our, our tagline between, uh, instead of saying hello or goodbye, you'd go advanced hair. Yeah, yeah. So this, this is a, a legitimate, uh, a legitimate connection and I suppose you want to look after your hair daily so they are on the daily show um, there's also some irony that that we're two people who have a reputation for having hair um, yes you know yours with your obsession with the perfection of it and mine with my complete neglect of it but nonetheless hair being a thing that we have so I don't know maybe we're maybe we're a, a standard to be aspired to for people who don't I, I can't tell you I can't tell you about the um the, the the drive and the client base but I can tell you that it's funny that we are working with them on our show yeah, you have a lot of hair. You have the sideshow bob sort of thing going on and have always maintained that look quite 
quite uh, diligently. By contrast, I've got the quite straight sort of advertising executive from the 60s style hair, uh, which, you know, I, I've let it go a bit more free and easy recently, but I've often declared that my hair is the best inside the M25 here in London and I stand by it. It's a self-given tag. The contrast, of course, being with Daniel Norcross, who is just starting to show signs of, mm. of losing his hair. So we'll see whether he, we can get him in with the world champions of hair restoration, which we'll be talking a lot about. There's going to be a Discount as well, quite a considerable discount for Final Word listeners. All of that will be revealed on The Daily Show starting on Thursday. But yes, Advanced Hair Studio offer a 100% guarantee to get results and over 1 million people worldwide have sought their professional advice from over the years. So uh, watch this space come Thursday, Advanced Hair. Yeah, yeah. I've always (laughs) wanted to say that. (laughs) Now in Test Cricket, Adam, England and South Africa women will have played a test match by the time we do the next weekly show, or they'll be most of the way through one, I suppose. They're starting that yep. next week. The England squad's been announced. South Africa have a, a touring squad of 15. Dane Van Niekerk's still not fit, so she's still not there. Sune Luce is still captaining that side. Uh, they've got their usual core of all-rounders, really, that they're building that team around with uh, Marazan Cup and Nadine de Klerk and Chloe Tryon and so on. I don't know who's going to make the 11 for that squad, but the England Test squad has been announced as well. The major news from it is that Catherine Brunt is not in it. Uh, she's retired from Test match cricket. Yeah, the 10th longest test career in the history of the game, according to the ECB's press release, having made a debut back in 2004 against New Zealand, who, of course, haven't played a a test match since, which puts it in some perspective. 51 wickets at 21.5 in 14 tests, which, again, that that speaks to the longevity as well, I reckon, the fact that she's been able to play 14 test matches in an era where there's been so so little of it. She described it as the smart decision in her own words, and a tough one, but the smart one. It felt like a pretty obvious one to me. If she's getting up for for one thing this summer, it's going to be the Commonwealth game, surely. I saw some hand-wringing about it in the usual corners of the internet about, oh, why, why, why? Because, like, she's 37 on the 2nd of July. She's been talking about retirement since 2017. It's a long time Mm. to be talking about retirement. I know she's been a cricketer reborn in recent summers as more, I suppose, a bowling all-rounder and leading the attack in a slightly different way. But yeah, some tremendous performances at test level. I'm really pleased, Jeff, that she finished on a high at Canberra, the match you were at earlier Mm. in the year, taking eight for 84, including the five for 60 in the first innings. It felt right. And, you know, you go back to those two excellent performances in 2005 and 2009 at Worcestershire, which were both kind of ashes defining in 2005, match figures of nine for 111 to bowl out. Australia for 131 on the first day, thanks to a five for 47. And Jeff, we've spoken to Isha Gua on the show many years ago, it feels like now, but their 85 run stand for the final wicket where Brunt made 52 of those. And that put them in such a great position to, mm. to push home the advantage. Four more wickets for Brunt in the second innings. And that meant they they won their first test over Australia since 1984 and their first women's ashes full stop mm-hmm. since 1963. And then, and then four years after that, she was equally important in a draw at Worcestershire against Australia, um, taking six for 69 in the first innings to ensure that it would be very hard for the Australians to open up the door and, and win that test match. So, so England retained the ashes there after winning them mm. uh, in, in 2005. So yeah, early in her career. And it feels remarkable, Jeff, to think that, you know, two 2005 in 
men's context, like what the last England men's player to retire from that series was Ian Bell about four years ago, five years ago. I know Jimmy's still playing, but he wasn't part of 2005. Whereas with the women, you know, Brunt has still been going strong the whole way through. She has, and she's changed up the way that she operates at times, you know, particularly in white ball cricket. But I think what was noticeable in that test match was that it wasn't the funky variations and all of the rest of it. It was Catherine Brunt doing Catherine Brunt, you know, running in as hard as she could, getting yep. a bit of a way swing, bowling as fast as possible, getting edges into the court and getting it to duck back in and, and hit the pads and being that kind of at-them opening fast bowler that was what she'd built her legacy around. So I think playing in one of the, although it was a draw, it was one of the all-time great women's tests. Um, the fact that all the results were possible right down towards the end. So yep. that's a fitting way for for her to go out, although it's a, a little sad that it's it's being announced this close to the test match. And, and it's more notable with Sonia Shrubsole having pulled the pin as well. So it really is that next generation now that have... The, the possibility, the uh, the opening is there for them to try to get themselves a spot in the team, you know, whether you're looking at Freya Davies or like Lauren Bell coming in, you know, Izzy Wong will be a travelling reserve with that team, not necessarily going to be in the 11, but you never know, you know who might trip over or roll an ankle uh, and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's going to be the point of intrigue is where do England go from here with the bowling attack? I think that's right. So, I mean, you go back 12 months, that test match against India, of course, Brunt and Shrubsole were the first two fast bowlers picked and they had a, a, a quite a deep attack with Georgia Elwes in it. Well, you know, they've got different sorts of options this time around. Uh, Alice Davidson-Richards, who, uh, who's been excellent over the last couple of years uh, in the domestic competitions that have sprung up, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint and the Charlotte Edwards Cup final. I was covering that since the last time. I re-recorded a, a couple of weeks ago. She effectively replaces George Elwes, who made up the last spot in that team 12 months ago. Elwes isn't there at the moment. So, and you mentioned a couple of the quicks, Emily Arlett, who has been there and thereabouts for the last 12 months or so from the Central Sparks. Lauren Bell, who's from the Vipers, who are dominant across the formats and she's been leading their attack. Izzy Wong, I'm surprised that Izzy didn't get picked in the sort of squad proper, but it's a bit of a nod there that she is the travelling reserve. She bowled outstandingly well in that Charlotte Edwards semi-final and bowled quickly too. I mean, you know, there's a lot of chat around her one day hitting the 80 mile an hour barrier. I, I can see that happening as she sort of fills out in her frame and she's like that nice skiddy action too, wonderful approach to the crease. And then there's Freya Davies, who's a really interesting sort of case study in what's possible with central contracts and what's possible with the, the professional system. You know, trained as a lawyer, was never able to quite take the next step, but used the Kia Super League to, to get herself international squads, mm. made her debut, I think, in 2018, I want to say, missed out for a couple of years, got back in last year, and she's the bowler who Anya Shrubsole identified as the next attack leader. Whether she ends up being that, time will tell, but it looks as though she's earned her opportunity and kind of earned her stripes, and that might not have been the case a generation or two ago when, when you know, if you showed a bit of promise, you'd be in the England team. Now you've really got to do it over a longer stretch of time. So I'm hoping that Freya Davies uh, gets that opportunity. And yeah, I assume that maybe Arla and Bell, they, they probably will both play and, and Davison Richards as the, as the next same option that they have there as well as the sort of genuine all-rounder. And she's played that role really well in domestic cricket. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that test match. I'm gutted not to be there. I wish I was um, going to be there covering that next Monday, but 
will be in Sri Lanka, as we said already. So we'll be following it very closely, Jeff. I can already see it. You and me huddled around a television in a hotel bar somewhere, watching the coverage from Taunton where that test starts. Uh, Four-day test match. And hopefully it's uh, on a pitch that's more competitive and more sporting uh, than the one we saw down there in 2019. Yeah, come on, Taunton. Give us something. Give us something (laughs) to play on. Give us a raging turner that would be better than the the shit heap of 2019. Um, South Africa's first test match since 2014, so good to see them getting back into the whites. This will be your last reminder on the show to get a copy of the book Cricketomics if you're interested in cricket and the weird questions around it and all the rest of it. Um, this was not an advertorial position, but we, we interviewed Tim Wigmore a few <laughs> weeks ago and then after that um, decided to promote the book because we thought it was yeah. interesting and it, it seemed like a good fit. You were like, well, people who listen to a cricket podcast might be interested in this book about all of the riddles in cricket and then how you try to solve them with data. So Stefan Szymanski is the, a, an award-winning economist who wrote the Soconomics book about the uh, economics of football around the world um, and then turned his attention with Tim Wigmore to cricket to see if they could do the same. Yeah, Bloomsbury Sport published uh, yeah, Cricketomics, the Anatomy of Modern Cricket, and as you say, it seemed like a good idea after talking about the book that we should promote it for a couple of weeks. A number of uh, final nerds who I spoke with on the weekend have either started reading or ordered to read uh, this. So there's clearly something there, and as we learnt in our interview with them, like these are taking all of their big ideas and, and eccentric, quirky ideas too, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the type of people we're dealing with here. We're dealing with an economist and we're dealing with Wiggy uh, and, and, and they've patched them all together across, I think it's 24 excellent chapters. I, I raced through it in the space of a couple of nights and partly because it does bounce around. Like one minute you're talking about sort of the, the, the T20 influence on test cricket through players like Sanat Jayasuriya and Gilchrist. Then you're talking about German cricket and the Afghanistan influence. I know Tim's done a lot of great work on that. Then you're talking about the Barmy Army and how they've informed the different patterns in, I guess, the economics of test cricket. And we were referring to that earlier with respect to uh, the Netherlands trip that's going on at the moment. All the private school, government school studies they've done into why England batters come from those schools, but why not their bowlers? And demographics changing Indian cricket and some sort of relatively controversial takes in there about Australian private schools and how they have changed the way that teams are being picked in Australia, even if we haven't necessarily noticed it. Jeff, Mm -hmm. I I, I immediately pushed back on this idea and then it was presented in the book. I'm like, oh, shit, maybe there's something in this. So uh, all told, uh, uh, an excellent contribution. And yes, again, Tim Wigmore with the goods. He had an award-winning book with Freddie Wilde a couple of years ago. And I suspect this will end up award-winning as well with Stefan Szymanski, Cricketomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket. And Jeff, where do you get it from? Uh, The internet. You can punch it into the internet. It doesn't have to be the, um, the... the awful global giant of book retailing. It could be if you find that more convenient for you. I reckon they probably own Book Depository as well now, but those guys are good because they do free shipping around the world, so you could try them. Look, ask Michael Google uh, and he will help (laughs) you sort it out. Right, time for the mid-show break, and then the rest of it. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Now, this is the final word, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and uh, I see in our notes here, and I feel like this is something that you might be more enthused about than me, county cricket being played in March. Now, I know you've you've come up with this kind of stuff before. <laughs> is this just your idea? Have you just sent this to the ECB, and uh, are you now leaking it and saying that they're considering it? No, Tim Wigmore is saying that they're considering it. Did Adam just leak it to Tim Wigmore? I'm not sure, but... 
apparently, apparently, there's some thought that they should play overseas, whether that's in the Caribbean, whether that's in Asia, whether that's in the Middle East, because they want to prepare players to play spin better? Is this is this the actual reason or is it to try to free up space in the congested summer with the 14 white ball competitions at the ECB play? What's the go? Why is this getting momentum? Why is your pet project of making them play county cricket year <laughs> round? You think the IPL is going to take over the cricket year? No, no. If Adam has his way, it'll be county cricket being played 11 months a year with a four-week break for a county cricket World Cup, much like football. <laughs> Yeah, not quite, but why not both when you say about playing spin or um, or the congested schedule? And look, this story has prompted outrage in, in in some parts of the conversation, but I think it's just worth remembering that the High Performance Review are coming at this, I, I expect, with fresh eyes. Like they're trying to, you know, think outside the square. It's not as though playing cricket overseas in March and April, I think it should be played in April too, is a totally new idea. People have been going on about this for years. What I've said is that you could play a lot of the 50-over competition abroad mm-hmm. and then start the Red Bull stuff a little bit later. This is a bit more radical, the idea of playing actual championship cricket in March. And, yes, in this piece, one of the points cited is the chance to have more spinners playing full stop. And this is true. There aren't a lot of first-choice spinners getting a game throughout those early months of the season. And you could argue, to use the cliche, push to the margins of the season, so is county cricket, Mm. in April and May. How often do you need a spinner? Less than would be the case if they were playing county cricket in June and July and August and September. I should note, by the way, they're playing rounds at the moment in amongst the blast and they, mm-hmm. and they play four rounds, at least four rounds, I think it is, in September when when conditions do suit more turn. And they've always played county cricket in April and May anyway and, and if you go back to the weird old days, there have always been dodgy slow left armers taking an absolute shit tonne of wickets, <laughs> an imperial shit tonne of wickets as it was at the time rather than the, the yes. modern metric shit tonne um, yes. by being spinners. You know, it, it's, it's not really about... Well, I, I think it's about the kind of surfaces you're playing on and yeah. if you're playing on uncovered wickets and all the rest of it, then those spinners used to be brought into play. You play on good pitches these days. But uh, really, surely you don't need to go overseas to be able to bowl spin. Surely you can take I, the, the, the Sidrabat option and prepare spinning wickets. You could. In, in I, I, I don't, yeah, you, what you're saying is right. It's about the surfaces, right? And that's the most important thing, as it so often is when we're watching domestic cricket or, or women's cricket, for that matter. Like we, we spent mm. a lot of time in earlier editions of the podcast lamenting how bad the pitches have been for women's internationals over the journey and how we would like them to put more of an emphasis on this. So yes, that's part of it, but there's an environmental element to it as well, isn't there? If it's 30 something degrees, you're more likely to have a couple of spinners playing. And that's only part of it though. I don't think that's the main thing. The main thing is using the resource, which is that month when historically, and I stress this point, pre-COVID clubs were going to that part of the world anyway. They were involved in these you could call it spring training to borrow baseball parlance. Mm-hmm. I know that. Jeff, you know that too because we've watched it before. We watched Middlesex and Sussex down in Cape Town, I don't oh, know, yeah. four years ago or something like that. This is actually or was actually a thing. Now, what I've learned since tweeting out this Wigmore story the other day is that these aren't a thing. These will not be a thing anymore. We right. know the county. Right. Everybody knows the counties have less money washing around than they did before. So even wealthier clubs who might have had the privilege of being able to spend a few weeks in South Africa or Asia or wherever, mm. that's harder now. So this would need to be funded centrally. And, I, you know, I, I don't think the reason to not do this is because it would annoy county fans who go to games, by the way. The technology with streaming has meant that county fans, county members have never had a better opportunity at following their clubs 
from their sofa if they wish to. I know it would be frustrating not having quite as many days of cricket in England, but I think there might be something there. But where I absolutely understand the criticism is those saying, well, we're, we're talking about cricket having a, a reduced carbon footprint. How can you justify having 18 clubs and all the support staff all playing abroad and all flying elsewhere? So, yeah, I stress this, that pre-COVID, this was happening anyway. My expectation was that it would continue happening. Mm. And thus, this could be an elegant way of not having to play cricket in early April, playing some one-day cricket back in March, start of April, return when conditions are more suitable, in my view, for playing Red Bull cricket through May and beyond. But yep. Yeah, I, I think on balance, this this will hit the fence. And I should say, by the way, the high high performance review are discussing all sorts of things. It's um, it's something that right. you know, it's it's everything on the table. Let's see what sticks. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of like butcher's paper, whiteboard stuff. It's only right they would be discussing things like this. And occasionally, when you're having wide ranging conversations, they will end up in the press. But there seems to be a reflexive sense from some quarters that any change is bad. And we need to defend every bit of territory. I don't think that's a helpful viewpoint either. I think there needs to be yeah. a more open mind to how this is going to work. Guys, the 100 is going to be there in perpetuity. Now, we, you know, you may not, we may not, anyone may not like the 100, but it's going to be there. It's going to be baked into the schedule. There's, there's going to be a block for that competition, whether it's called the 100 or something else, it'll be called the 100 for the foreseeable future. So you've kind of got a choice if you're a fan of county cricket. You can adapt and 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 see a future where the red ball game can still be invested in, where county cricket with the blast and, and the, the Royal London Cup, the 50 over competition can still be looked after. And you can focus on that and focus on where there might be some gains there. Or you can get really, really angry about the 100 every day and call it the 16.4 and all the rest of it, which is just not helpful. Where I sit as a huge supporter of county cricket and ideally you know, keeping the 18 counties, which is what I'd like to see happen, I think you need to have an open mind. You can't be reflexively against anything that changes the status quo. And yes, while this seems to have more negative points than positive points, it's not automatically just a shit idea because some cricket's being played away from England. That's not it. It's, it there could be other reasons why it's a bad idea, but getting ones back up because they, they don't want to see a couple of games played away from England there are other reasons that detract from this. That that alone, I don't think, is, is the case. Well, I suppose it's the endlessly contested question about whether the counties exist for themselves or whether they exist to produce an England test team, uh, because that's not how it was 150 years ago, but that doesn't mean that it isn't how it is now. Uh, that England test team feeling pretty good about themselves after winning the series against New Zealand. Uh, it's it's a year since the World Test Championship final in Southampton that New Zealand won a different sort of world for New Zealand now. They've had those quirks with their selections where it's felt like in that second test there were a lot of times when they really wanted Neil Wagner and he wasn't there. Um, the first test, there were times when they really wanted Matt Henry and he wasn't there. Everybody got belted around in the second test, though. Matt Henry got smashed. Uh, Bracewell got smashed. The, the debutant uh, might be a might be a one and done for Bracewell. Who knows? So it was probably a bit unfair to to try to make him the primary spinner in that particular eleven. But they've got one test match to try to correct things, and uh, England feeling pretty good. Yeah, I think Bracewell will end up being a pretty good test cricketer, but that to one side, I, I agree. I mean, Jared Kimber put it in a piece today that they were kind of falling into that trap that England fell into into the ashes where they were for the, the, the next test match, they were picking the right team for the previous test match. Oh, so yeah. Henry should have played the at Lords. Silverwood and, theory. Yeah, there's, yeah that, a little bit of that there. So, yeah, New Zealand feel like they're, they're on the precipice of sort of falling away here, don't they? I wonder whether there might be something in in the idea that Williamson gives up the captaincy, like, and not 
a criticism of Williamson, by the way, just he's not been available too often anyway, and just relieving him of that responsibility in the same way that Joe Root mm. has been liberated recently and only has to concentrate on batting. And the same could have been said of Steve Smith when he first came back as well in, in 2019 after the suspensions. That Williamson's been doing that job for a bloody long time. I mean, Brendan McCullum retired, Jeff, what, uh, February 2016 yeah. was his last international. That's you know, more than six years as an international captain, even acknowledging the fact that Williamson has captained far fewer test matches than someone like Root. It has to add up after a while, and he is picking up injuries and COVID last week to complicate matters yet further. So, uh, yeah, I, I ponder whether there might be something there. I, I think that I think that is a big difference, though. I mean, Root captained 17 test matches last year. Williamson captains about six oh, in, a, in a given year. It, it's, and if there was a different test captain, you know, who wasn't... Like, New Zealand have to have a captain across all formats because they play so little test cricket, basically, that that you end up in a Tim Payne in COVID situation where you're the national captain and you never play and you're drawing a wage Possibly. for being the captain and, and not being called upon. You know, it's, it's a, there's far less consistency. It's almost a ceremonial position a lot of the time yeah. when you're not playing. Yeah, I see that, but like Latham's been doing it more than he's not been doing it. I don't, I don't think that'd be a bad move just to free up Williamson just to be a batter into yeah. the future. I mean, the opposite of this, by the way, is that like England now seems sport for choice, how quickly the whole thing turns. I mean, even the fact that Jamie Overton is being brought into the squad this week, we saw Matt Potts picked a few weeks ago, they would have been miles down that depth mm. chart. But they're in form. They're being picked at the right time. They've earned it through county cricket, which is a great thing. And this sort of this confidence at all costs approach that, uh, that, that McCullum is bringing through. I mean, you, got, you and Daniel spoke about Alex Lees last week. Great interview with Ben Folks that Vish has done uh, in Crick Info where he started last week, where he gave a bit more insight to what it's like playing under McCullum. He described it as a William Wallace speech at the tea break on the final day. The quote was, we're winning this. If we don't, so be it. We've done it the right way. It doesn't matter if we don't win this game. And as folks said, that took the pressure off them. Like, you know, and I kind of get that. If you're being told, you just go for this and you will not be held accountable if it doesn't work out. We want to win the game of cricket. That's what McCullum's bringing to the dressing room, telling them they can do it and actually them believing that it's so. And, yeah, very perky compared to the side that looked, you know, gone. They'd won one of their last 17. I think, Jeff, at one point we said they could lose all seven this summer. I know I certainly did. Uh, if not here, then certainly in other places. And maybe it was the case that the darkest hour was before dawn and now they've uh, got someone in charge who is able to get the best out of a team who – are probably predisposed to being hyper-aggressive based on what we've seen in their, in their white ball cricket over the last five or six years. And they might have the right combination and they, they could be a, a tricky opponent, especially for teams that visit England. And now I've said all of that, they'll get pumped in three days at Leeds. But you know what I'm trying to say, I'm sure. <laughs> um, look, there's every chance they will. And and that would be fair enough. They're a, they're a fallible team. They played that fourth innings of that test match on basically the same pitch that their one day team played on in Amsterdam you know that was it was flat and ready to hit but that that still doesn't mean you know had this been a year ago in exactly the same conditions they wouldn't have been going to go after that win in the same way they wouldn't have had that sort of liberation of Bairstow to do what he did and and I know there's there's always that lack of consistency in cricket that if someone gets out playing an aggressive shot then everybody shits on them and says they're an idiot whereas if they hit that shot for six then they're a counter-attacking genius um, mm. but there are mm. there are there are desperate aggressive shots in a situation where they're not going to help you know I'm thinking uh, Butler's one at was it Melbourne or Sydney last year where he yep. played that weird one out to the deep. Melbourne, that, yeah. There was nothing. There was nothing to be gained from doing that. But 
there are times in which there will be there is something to be gained and I thought you know Bairstow's innings was at at that time that was a good move if you wanted to try to win that match rather than just bat it out for a draw so look who knows I, I think one thing to avoid with the England at the moment is putting too much store in their last one or two results no matter how they yeah, go no yeah. matter how badly or how well they go I just come back to that overarching point that a strong England is good for world cricket so yeah, I hope this is the start of something. Um, but you're right to, to say that we should uh, bide our time in, in jumping to conclusions. Uh, and, Jeff, on that note, uh, I've got to go. I've got to go and pick up Winifred from the nursery. But you know what? Lovely. We're doing this again tomorrow. We're making story time tomorrow. And then we're making weekly shows pretty much every day for about a month. Yep, yep. We, there is going to be no shortage of listening to us uh, rabbit on about things. But give Winnie a squeeze for me. This has been The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. If you want to support the show, patron.com slash the final word. It's edited by Dave Collins and it is listened to by you. Thank you. We love you very much for it. That's it from us. See you next time. I had to go about it right.